Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Psalm 36. Psalm 36 is where we're going to camp out this morning as we continue to make our way through the book of the Psalms. And we are still in book one, which is a book of Psalms that, that have a very familiar, similar theme. If you're, if you're here week in and week out, and you're like, I felt like I heard that last week. That's because there's a lot of overlap thematically uh, between these Psalms. And we have considered in Psalm 35 the steadfast servant of the Lord. And in Psalm 36, we're going to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So we're going to learn that the servant is able to be steadfast in following the Lord, even in a world of opposition, because of the Lord that he serves. The Lord that he serves has a steadfast love. So as we dive into Psalm 36, I hope you're there by now. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and we trust as Jesus has prayed that that you will set us apart, that you will sanctify us in the hearing of your word. God, that you would choose this morning to make us more like Christ and less like our fleshly selves. God, that that we would be uh, an aroma in the nostrils of our Father because we would be willing to spend our lives for the glory of Christ, the servant of the Lord who perfectly fulfills this psalm. God, help us to to find our place in this psalm today and to be receptive and open to the Spirit dealing with us however He sees fit. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The steadfast love of the Lord. This psalm begins with a superscription. Uh, The superscription is a part of the inspired text of Scripture. Uh, These are the words that come before verse 1 and are not a part of 
the heading that was supplied by the editor. So those words are, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. And the words choir master, interestingly, may also be translated unto the end. In fact, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament suggests that that is what was intended. It's unto the telos, unto the end of time, meaning the culmination of history that hinges upon David or the son who would come in the line of David, one who's like David, but even greater than him. And we know who that is. That is the living Lord Jesus Christ. The, the servant of the Lord language is used frequently of Moses who served God's purposes in delivering Israel from captivity in Egypt. And then it's applied to David only in Psalm 18 and here in Psalm 36. And we know the ultimate servant of the Lord is this one who is like Moses and like David. He leads God's people out of a, a greater slavery, slavery to sin and death. And he's like David in that he's not just any king, but he's king over all of God's people. So this psalm is, is by David, King David, but ultimately about a greater David who will come and serve the Lord and see two realities that are captured in this psalm. One reality ends in destruction, and one reality ends in life and joy. And this servant of the Lord is going to place his confidence in the Lord in the, in the face of hostile threats, posed by the wicked, and he will nevertheless rely upon the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, you'll, you'll remember this, you don't need to turn there. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus describes these two paths, the paths of wickedness and the paths of righteousness as gated. You, you remember this? They're, they're gated, and he says to us to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. These two ways are captured in this psalm, and yet, as we see in this psalm, though the gate is narrow and the path is difficult that leads to life, it is also the path of knowing the matchless love of God, of knowing the goodness of the Lord. Wilson summarizes it this way, Psalm 36 offers confidence to withstand the proud and arrogant evil of the wicked because of a divine revelation of the all-encompassing love of Yahweh for those who know Him. But before offering us this confidence, we first get an honest assessment of the life of the wicked, of those who oppose the Lord's servant. So if you can imagine Jesus, He, he enters time and space. He's conceived in his mother's Mary, and then he grows in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And, and this world that he encounters is described for us in verses 1 through 4. It's a world where the wicked are set against the Lord in attitude and in action. In verse 1, we read, transgression speaks to the wicked. Transgression is one of the big Bible words for sin. Uh, it, it's a particular type of sin. It means to intentionally cross a line, to trespass, to know where the line is, and then to cross it. Adam and Eve were the first transgressors, right? They knew not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they transgressed. And humanity has been transgressing ever since. Why? Because rebellion speaks to the wicked. 
Though, though sin technically has no mouth with which to speak, it calls out to the wicked, beckoning them to life or to live as if there is no God and he has no standards. Ellicott writes this, Sin is personified as the evil counselor or prompter sitting in the heart of the wicked to suggest evil thoughts. And we learn in verse 2 that this speaking resonates either deep in the heart of the wicked or perhaps in the heart of the Lord's servant. In fact, the earliest translations or the earliest manuscripts we have suggest that it says deep in my heart. If that's the case, it doesn't mean that the Lord's servant is captivated by sin or is under sin's spell, but he finds himself intently listening to and catching the meaning of ideas that govern wicked men. In other words, the wicked are not listening to the Lord who calls to them in love, but to the tempting lusts of full-scale rebellion. The wicked one does, does this because of what we read in the second half of verse 1. Do you see it? There is no fear of God before his eyes. The word fear here is used not, the, the word fear that is used here is not the typical word that is used for the fear of the Lord that signifies a, a relationship of dependence upon him. It's rather the word fear uh, meaning terror accompanied by trembling. So they misunderstand the Lord and his invitation to a healthy dependence upon him, and then they even reject being afraid of him because they're so deluded by their rebellion that they reject the Lord and his righteousness. The, the wicked one has no vision of the awesomeness of God before his eyes, which is very unfortunate because what does Ecclesiastes 12, 13 tell us? The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. So the wicked one misses the boat entirely. And he has no way to, to see through the lenses of an appropriate fear and dependence upon God because his eyes are set elsewhere. Do you see that in verse 2? He flatters himself in his own eyes. And this flattery consists in thinking that his sin or his iniquity, his guilt, can't be found out in, and hated. In other words, the wicked are either too deluded to see their sin in themselves or too confident that it won't be discovered, either because God doesn't exist as they see it, or if he does exist, he just doesn't care too much. And this orientation towards God allows them to make themselves the center of their own universe. And the result of this attitude, the result of this way of thinking, of ignoring the Lord and believing that that. The guilt of their sin will not be seen and it will have no consequence. It is found in verses 3 and 4. Do you see it? If we, if we believe, if our attitude is that God isn't there or that God doesn't care, what happens next? It leads to the action of sin. He sins comprehensively in verses 3 and 4. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the lack of the fear of the Lord is the seedbed of sin. The sinner's attitude towards God leads to the activity of sin. This is one reason we need the gospel, right? Why do we need the gospel? Because we need our hearts to be changed. We need more than just behavior modification. We need hearts that adore rather than ignore God. Because in adoring God, we're going to have right action. But in ignoring God, we're going to act like he doesn't exist and we're going to sin. But as for the wicked, he is set against the Lord. In his words, the first line of verse 3, 
In his actions, the second line of verse 3, in his thinking, the first line of verse 4, he is plotting on, even on his bed. In his will, he sets himself in a way that is not good, the second line of verse 4. And in his general disposition, the third line of verse 4, he does not reject evil. In other words, in every way, he's corrupted by sin and is a sinner. Though there was a time when he at least occasionally acted as though there was a way that was right and wise and good, that has ceased, and he is now entirely characterized by sin. So says verse 3. This is the plight. Verses 1 through 4 capture for us the plight of everyone who persists in unrepentant wickedness. Ultimately, sinner and sin are regarded as the same, and they suffer the same fate, judgment in the hands of a holy God. But the wicked, remember, have no sight of the fear of the Lord. So after spending the day sinning, he plots and schemes trouble, which means nothingness or vanity or, or wickedness or idolatry while on his bed. The wicked is so consumed with doing and planning wickedness that he even does it at night. Unashamedly, he, he sets himself, verse 4, he takes his stand literally on the way that is not good. He's taken the broad path with the wide gate, but there is no good to be, to, be, to be found there, and he does not care. The path of destruction suits him just fine. He does not reject evil. Indeed, without divine intervention, he has become powerless to reject evil. Dead in his trespasses and sins is how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. And apart from Jesus, the ultimate servant of the Lord, we would all remain among those who are the wicked. We would all stay in the category of on the wrong path. But praise God, in verses 5 through 9, there is a servant of the Lord who, the, who addresses the Lord directly and who pursues the path of righteousness. The gate might be narrow and the path might be difficult and the travelers may be few, it, but it is not a path that the servant of the Lord travels alone. For it is the path where we find the boundless love of God, which provides for those who dare to take it a sure foundation for all who acknowledge their dependence upon the Lord. And so what we see next in verses 5 through 9 is that God's people delight in the steadfast love of the Lord. Maybe this morning you're like, well, I, am I in category 1 through 4? Am I in verses 1 through 4? Or am I in verses 5 through 9? Do you act and believe as though there is no God with no standard? That you are the center of your own universe doing your own thing without consequence? That you can just trample over other people and do whatever you want? Or do you rather... Like the servant of the Lord in verses 5 through 9, delight not in yourself, but in the steadfast love of the Lord. I, I love verse 5. Stacy was talking to me this week. She goes, what are you going to do with Psalm 36? Some of y'all have been around long enough to know that Stacy and I, uh, she reads ahead and she'll be like, uh, what's she going to do with this one, big guy? Uh, we had some of that happen in Acts and I, I, week to week I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And she's like, she called it out. She goes, verses 1 through 4, I'm tracking, and then you get to verse 5, and it's like the whole psalm changes. I'm like, pretty much, way, way to go. Good reading, right? Like, the wicked are described in 1 through 4, and then in verse 5, 
the servant of the Lord addresses the Lord. Like, what am I going to do in this world of wickedness? What am I going to do when the path with the big wide open gate is so enticing? What am I going to do when there's wickedness all around and I'm surrounded by evil thoughts and deeds, not only from outside, but from inside, because I still got this sinful flesh because knucklehead Adam didn't stop Eve from eating the fruit. And it's been a struggle for us ever since. How am I going to deal with all this junk? Verse five, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. There is an alternate reality. There is another path. There is another way to look at life. There is another way to endure, and it is by looking to God. This is an abrupt transition right in the heart of the psalm as the Lord's servant now celebrates the steadfast love of the Lord. This this word steadfast love is the Hebrew word kesed. It, It means covenant loyalty. It's the promise-keeping love of God. It's, it's really difficult to capture what the word means with just a one word. It's, it's the steadfast love, the covenant loyalty-keeping love. It's the love of God that never, ever fails. Why? Because it reaches to the heavens. And his faithfulness, which is related to his love, his, his steadiness, his reliability goes to the clouds. The the idea is that the promise-keeping love of God toward those who rely on Him, who acknowledge Him and depend on Him, is inexhaustible. You cannot find the end of the love of God. In verse 6, we move from the Lord's love and faithfulness to His righteousness and His judgments or His justice. Uh, Unlike the wicked who look to God's righteousness and justice as burdens to be avoided or ignored, the servant of the Lord sees them as radically connected to his love. The servant of the Lord doesn't see the holiness of God and the love of God as opposed to one another, but as united. His love reaches to the heavens and his righteousness and justice fill the earth, expanding from the mighty mountains to the great deep. By taking us from the heights of the Lord's love in the heavens to the depths of his justice, which are like the deepest of oceans, David shows us that God's love provides what his righteousness requires. Is God holy? Is he perfect? Is he infinite in his holiness? Absolutely. But the love of God likewise spans eternity. It is It is available for all who will run to Jesus. And the righteousness that we miss is something that he provides through his love for us in Christ. As Wilson puts it, David brings together Yahweh's love with his faithfulness, righteousness, and justice to form a complete and secure foundation for human trust and dependence. Though the world is filled with people who are listening to the voice of transgression, transgression will not win. Instead, look at the end of verse 6. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Even though there's a world of wickedness, even though there's a world where transgression speaks to the heart of the wicked, somehow, because of the immense love of God that is connected to the righteousness of God, He will save man and beast. That that means man and animal. Though sin entered the world and brought a curse to the world, there will be a future world where man and beast 
are saved. Now, I don't know if that means my dog Benji is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth or not. But I'm pretty sure a dog like Benji is going to be there, right? You say, well, what about my puppy dog? Is he going to make it? I, I don't know, but there's going to be puppy dogs in heaven, right? Puppy dogs are a part of God's good creation, and he is going to save man and beast. The love of God assures us that the sinful rebellion of man will not ultimately prevail. One day man and beast will dwell on earth and sin and death will be no more. Hallelujah. And when it comes to humans who see the gap between their lives and the righteousness of God or who often face struggles in a world filled with wickedness and rebellion, we understand the first line of verse 7. Do you see it? How precious is your love, your steadfast love, O God. The word precious here means priceless. You see, God's love is not just immense. It's great to, to sing about the immense and vast love of God. If it weren't immense, if it were not vast, then we would be stuck in our sin. But praise God, the love of God can even overcome our sin in Christ. It's an immense, unfathomable love, but it's also a priceless and personal love. It's an intimate love. Yes, it's huge, but it's also for you. God welcomes us to be sheltered, verse 7. Do you see it? To take refuge in the shadow of his wings. You see, at once, the, the picture is, is like a vulnerable baby bird in the world. That's, that's what we were like. We were completely dependent. We are completely dependent, rather, upon the Lord. And yet, in being completely dependent upon the Lord, we are also safe and assured that when we trust in the Lord, like a baby bird nestling other its, under its mother's wings, that there is security and safety. The love of God does two things simultaneously. It humbles you to the dust, and it secures you like nothing else can. The love of God. We are nothing without the love of God. What are we without the love of God? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But because God loves me, I have assurance. Because God loves me, I have confidence. Not because of what I've done or who I am, but because God loves me, I can wake up in the morning and I can do it all over again. Why? Because like a... a huge bird sheltering her babies under her wings. He brings us close and secures us. We are nothing without the shelter of our heavenly Father, but we can do anything through Christ who strengthens us because that is the means by which our Father gives us His love. God's love simultaneously humbles us, and yet it also secures us. The Lord, at a great cost, because of His precious and costly love, makes a way, verse 7, for the children of man, young, old, in between, to come to Him for shelter in a world of wickedness. And when we take refuge in Him, He does not hold us out at arm's length. Instead, what does He do? He brings us His righteousness so that we can be in His presence. We can be, verse 8, do you see it? In His house. There was a song by DC Talk. Any of y'all remember this one? Nobody, anybody remember DC Talk? Big, big house with lots and lots of food. Big, big table. Nobody? All right. Um, I, I think they built that song on verse 8. 
He welcomes us into his house for a feast where we drink from the river of his delights. In Hebrew, the word, this is good stuff. This is why you study the text during the week. In Hebrew, the word delights sounds like the word Eden. Did you catch that? They're not spelled the same, but they sound the same. And so many Hebrew scholars believe that what's going on in verse 8 is a, is a play on words where delights and the Eden-like life, the life of the Garden of Eden, are connected. Because Adam and Eve were created for a life of delighting in God, and then sin broke that. But now, because of the love of God that is provided for us in Christ, the servant of the Lord, who prefer perfectly fulfills the will of the Lord, we are invited into God's house where we feast and drink of the river of His delights. Those who take refuge in the Lord will enjoy a new and greater Eden, both now and at Christ's return. Now, inwardly, and one day in full, when the new heavens and the new earth come at Christ's return. The world is marked by the wicked for now, but those who take refuge in the Lord will be filled by the Lord's presence and will have their thirst quenched by that which the Lord delights in. On the path that has a big old wide gate and everybody's going to, it looks fun, but nobody really has much fun, ultimately. But for those who will take the narrow path with the narrow gate where it seems that there are few, we delight in what God delights in. It's no accident that we read in Ezekiel 47 of an immense river flowing from the temple. In verse 8, we read about drinking from the river of his delights. In Ezekiel 47, there's an immense river flowing from the temple yet to come with Christ. Or that we read in Revelation 22, what do we get? A vision of the new heavens and the new earth, which includes the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Or what does Jesus say in John chapter 7, verse 38. We've got it above the water fountain in the student area. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How is it that this river of delights can capture the heart of the servant of the Lord? It's because Christ came and he lived a perfect life and he died an atoning death and he was risen on the third day and he poured out the Holy Spirit to unite you with Christ so that your heart could be changed and you would no longer ignore God or act like God doesn't exist, but instead you would adore God and you would want to do His will and it would bring joy to you. Why? Because the Spirit made you new on the inside. And what does Jesus go on to say in the next verse in John 7? He says, this water is an analogy for the Spirit whom those who believed in Him would receive. You looking for real delight? Sure, if you're on the broad path, acting like there is no God, you can satisfy your flesh for a minute or two. You, you, can, go, you can go get buzzed, you can go get drunk, you can go check out online and, and log into stuff that you shouldn't be logging into. You can satisfy your flesh for a moment, but tell me, look me in the eye truthfully and tell me six hours later, after the thrill of the pleasure of sin is gone, that you, that you have real delight. I, can you honestly say that? 
And I submit to you the answer is no, because the God-shaped hole that's in the heart of every man that Augustine talked about can only be filled satisfyingly with God. Food for our hungry souls and drink for our thirsty lives is not found in the path of wickedness. It's not found when we run down the, the broad path. It is found when we run from wickedness and we seek refuge in the Lord because, well, the Lord is God and you get God and there's nothing like getting God. He's the one that you were made to know and to worship and to follow. There's no checklist that I can give you. If you do these 75 things, these 7.5 things, or these two things, that it'll make your life wonderful. What you need is to know God. You need to be like the little bird that goes to the big mama bird and says, I need you. I need you. And in you, I have my humility I've been humbled to the dust, and I've also been secured. We need God because, as Psalm 1611 puts it, in His right hand are pleasures forevermore. We get Him not because we're worthy, not because we're witty, but simply because of His immense love, which made a way for any who will run to Him to be saved. What people need to know is God in love. This connection between being refreshed by God and having a relationship with God is made plain in verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. When you come to Jesus, when you trust in the Lord, the lights come on. It starts to make sense. The world doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. Come to Christ and watch the lights come on. The Lord is our life and our light. So in the New Testament, when John declares that Jesus has come in John 1.4, what does he say? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And when he does this, he's using biblical language to tell us that Jesus is God. I love talking to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and others who'd be like, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God. I'm like, really? Where should we start? Where Jesus forgives sins? And the Hebrews and the Pharisees are upset that he forgives sins because that would make him a blasphemer because the only one who can forgive sins is God? Or should we go to John chapter 1? That he was in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and, and he made the world. He created everything. Or should we go to Colossians 1 where he made everything? Who made everything? That's, that's y'all can answer that. God made everything. And if Jesus made everything and God made everything, what does that make Jesus? God. And here again in John 1, 4, in him was life and life was the light of men. He's using the language of Psalm 36 to tell us Jesus is God. He is where we find never-ending life. Longman summarizes it this way, as a fountain spews forth refreshing water, so God is the source of life. He provides light, light that illumines our life. And what's interesting is here, light is primarily uh, symbolizing joy. It's not just truth, it's not just the ability to discern darkness from light, it is the joy that comes from being able to see the right path and living with union of the God of love in an otherwise depressing and sin-darkened world. And the way, excuse me, and we know the way he made is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. For he alone faced a world where transgression speaks, and he refused to listen. 
He alone, Jesus alone, came and lived as a man, fully relying upon the Father through the cross to give us the righteousness that the Lord requires and cancel our debt of sin and change us from the inside out. And for many in the room today, we have known this love. We have encountered the immense and incomprehensibly vast yet personable love of God toward us in Jesus. But until he returns, until Christ returns and the the war is culminated, the battle to trust him in a troubled world continues. And so Psalm 36 ends as so many of the other psalms have ended so far in verses 10, 11, and 12. It ends calling us to be confident. It it ends calling us to rely afresh upon God. In verses 10 through 12, we see that we must keep relying on the Lord whose steadfast love does not cease and whose victory is assured. We must keep relying on the Lord whose steadfast love does not cease and whose victory is assured. I I don't know what this sermon, I don't know what situation in life that this sermon finds you in this morning. There's no way that I, I can know that for all of you. I know, I know some of your situation. And here's what I know. If you run to the Lord and take refuge in Him, He will not abandon you. His love is immense. I, I can't guarantee you that whatever circumstance or situation that you're in, that's, it's going to turn out just fine, that it's going to be rosy-posy. That the loved one that you're caring for isn't going to pass away. That the marriage that you're fighting for is going to make it. I don't have those answers. But I'll tell you this. If you, as an individual, will look to the love of God and take refuge in that, He will not fail. He will keep you to the end. In the final three verses of this psalm, we get a wonderful blend of dependency and assurance. Life and light are found in the Lord of an unsearchable, unscalable, steadfast, promise-keeping love. And now in verse 10, as Kidner writes, David finds himself stationed on the disputed ground between human wickedness in verses 1 through 4 and divine grace in 5 through 9. So in verse 10, he turns to prayer. Maybe you've been in a similar place. Maybe you know the theology. Maybe you know the facts about the Lord's immense love, but the forces of darkness or your own flesh and the world system seem to batter you and tempt you every day from every side. And what you need afresh this morning is to rest in the sheltering wings of our Lord, to know his protection and provision in the middle of the battle. So in verse 10, this is where David is. And what does he do? He prays. And he prays, interestingly, with a command. He's commanding God, which when, when we command God in prayer, uh, we need to be commanding something that we know he's going to do based on his character, and it's something that we're desperate for. So what does he say? Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Is that not what we need this morning? Not just to know about God's love, but to know his love. We, we don't need just the theology. It's important to get our theology right, but we, we need to know the person of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I know your love is immense and vast and unfailing, and I, I have known you intimately, but, but Lord, I'm desperate to continue knowing you and for you to continue supplying your righteousness to the upright in heart. And who are the upright in heart? The upright in heart are those who depend on God. 
other than Jesus, the only, the only others who are the upright in heart are not those who have their lives all together. It doesn't mean that you came in this morning and you were all right. It means that your dependence is upon God. They are the ones who keep taking refuge in the Lord, not in self-righteousness, not in good deeds, not in personal success, not in concealing their sin, but in confessing it. But their confidence is in the Lord, whose love reaches to the heavens. And in verse 11, David's prayer continues, a prayer for protection from the foot of arrogance and the hand of the wicked. Now, David's enemies, if you've done much reading in 1 and 2 Samuel, you know that David's enemies were often motivated by pride. They were motivated by a desire for power and authority that God had given to David. And those who opposed him, including his own son Absalom, wanted to drive him away from the presence of God and into the wilderness. And let's be clear, there will be times... When people motivated by pride seek out positions of church leadership or seek to topple God's ordained leaders or times when the wicked try to slither in and dilute the gospel and drive us away from the gospel message that leads to peace with God. And we, we likewise know that Jesus faced arrogant and wicked accusers who tried to snuff out his life. And we know that we might face similar attacks in a world that wants the church to fail. All right? All that's true. But the primary application, I believe, for us this morning is this. We need deliverance from ourselves. We need deliverance from our own pride. We need deliverance from our own flesh. We need deliverance from our pride, which, when wounded, lashes out in bitterness against those that we believe stood in our way, or when fueled, leads us to take others for granted, believing we deserve the post that God has so graciously given to us. In either scenario of pride, our eyes are taken off the Lord and placed on ourselves. We need deliverance from our pride. We also need deliverance from our own wicked hands. We need deliverance from our own sinful desires, our fleshly passions that threaten to drive us away from relying upon the Lord. And the following this prayer, God, let me continue to know your love. God, keep pride and and evil doing away from me, apart from this prayer, following this prayer rather, we find in verse 12 this assurance. There the evildoers lie fallen. There they are thrust down, unable to rise. Aren't you glad to know one day the wickedness that we are surrounded by and sometimes filled with will be made an end of once and for all? Though the battle rages, this text tells us the victory is won. The the text, the, the tense of the words lie fallen and thrust down are in the perfect tense. And I know some of you don't geek out on Hebrew grammar like your pastor does, and that's okay. But here's why that's important. Something written in the perfect tense signifies that it's a completed action with an enduring result. A completed action with an enduring result. Result. In other words, it's like it's already done. Well, when were our enemies defeated as, as good as done? When were they thrust down? Were they not thrust down when the Lord of glory came down? And as Philippians 2 says, became a man, and not just any man, but a servant, and not just any servant, but one who would die to take the place of all the wicked ones 
who would look to him so that they might live. You see, the good news of the gospel is this. Every one of us in here is an evildoer. There's not one of you that walked in this room this morning that isn't an evildoer. And most certainly, I can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And yet, by God's amazing grace, if you will trust in Christ, your evil will be nailed to the cross never to rise again. If you will trust in Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of of this psalm, evildoers get to become children of God. In Christ, you the evildoer were crucified, and you've been raised up a new creature in Christ, transformed, regenerated, adopted, and reborn, so that you might walk in the paths of righteousness with utter dependence upon the love of God. This morning, there's two paths. One is in verse 1 through 4, and one is in verses 5 through 9. This morning, if you know Christ, and you need to renew your focus on the love of God, maybe you would even spend time in prayer this morning saying, God, help me to live wholeheartedly for you and to experience the joy and delight of your presence. But if you don't know this God, don't wait another day. Let today be the day of salvation. As our worship team comes... I want to pray for us. Would you bow with me? God in heaven, we thank you for the steadfast love of the Lord. We thank you that though we are sinners, you are an even greater Savior. God, our sin was great and your love is greater still. And God, I pray this morning that that if there's anyone here battling or struggling and they know they know you, but God, they felt the temptation to just quit or throw in the towel that that you'd bring them back to a place of just being nestled under your wing. And God, if there's any here this morning that doesn't know the joy of belonging to God in a world of wickedness, God, save them this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.